If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And uh, as you're uh, turning there, uh, I think you can all relate with this uh, because I think, I think you all were children once. Um, I think. Jack, I'm not so sure. Jack, were you ever a child? Never. I didn't think so. Um, as a child, did you ever want to do something or did you ever want your parents to say yes to something and they said no and you said why and they said because I said so and you looked at them and you were like that's not an answer right Dad, oh, oh, Dad, I want to go over to my friend's house. We're going to play baseball. We're going to spend the night. We're going to have a lot of fun. Sorry, son. Can't do it. Why not, Dad? Why can't I go? Because I said so. What? What kind of an answer is that? Don't ever give your kids that answer. What an awful answer, right? Give them some sort of reason, right? I'm going to try to give my son a reason. We don't like because I said so. Uh, Interestingly enough, in Romans 9, we're going to get one of those answers. And for many of you, uh, it's not going to be very satisfying to get that answer. But as a child, sometimes gets that answer from his father. So also, there are moments... Not many, but there are some moments in our Christian life where we ask questions of the Lord and his answer to us is, because I said so. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Uh, The title of my message today is, is part two in a series of messages um, the, the, the series here is God's plan for Israel. And we're in the middle of Romans 9, 10 and 11. And, and it's a you know, it's a special part of Romans. And this part two here today is entitled mercy and hardening are God's prerogatives. Mercy and hardening are God's prerogatives. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, Turn to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And would you all stand with me as I uh, read the word uh, for us here this morning? Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. We're not going to get as, as far today as I would have hoped. But um, where, where we cut today is not a great place to cut. Um, but it was virtually impossible to go much further, considering the, the, the content here. So let's take a look. Romans 9, verse 14. Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up 
that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted God's will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You may be seated. Again, I'll, I'll express apologies for where we're cutting today because it's not where Paul would cut it. Um, but I trust you don't have about two hours to sit here with me. So let's go with uh, where we've cut today. Paul says in verse 14, notice what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now, what's he talking about? Where, where, what is Paul? What's this question even about? Why is he even bringing this up? Well, earlier in Romans nine, we were dealing with a very a sensitive issue, uh, the issue of election, the issue of predestination. And earlier in Romans nine, uh, Paul is found making the case uh, that that sometimes uh, God chooses someone over another. And we came to a couple examples of God choosing one and not choosing another. And those two examples were the story of Isaac and Ishmael and the story of Jacob and Esau. And uh, take a look at uh, Romans 9, verse 11. And this is the manner in which God chose Isaac and chose Jacob. It says in verse 11, just prior to our text today, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So let's go ahead and bring that up there. According to Romans 9:11, this is what it's suggesting here. God chose Isaac and God chose Jacob before they were born. That he did this. Before they had done any good or any evil. That he chose them based on his purpose. According to election. Now, many people are uh, understandably uncomfortable with Paul's explanation of God's actions. Many of us today don't like this explanation. Surely many Gentiles, many of those in the Roman Gentile church didn't like hearing time and time again that Israel was God's chosen nation. They must have thought, hey, what about us? And interestingly enough, many of the Jews did not like this idea of election either. In fact, they had squabbles within themselves over the degree to which things are under divine sovereignty and things are under the free will of man. Take, for instance, what Josephus said. Josephus was a first century historian, a Jewish historian commissioned by Rome. And this is what he had to say about three groups within Judaism. He says at this time, there were three sects among the Jews who had different opinions concerning human actions. The one was called the sect of the Pharisees, another the sect of the Sadducees, another the sect of the Essenes. 
Now, for the Pharisees, Josephus writes, they say that some actions, but not all, are the work of fate. And some of them are in our own power. But the sect of the Essenes affirm that fate governs all things, and that nothing befalls man but what is according to its determination. And for the Sadducees, well, they take away fate and say there's no such thing. And that the events of human affairs are not at its disposal, but they suppose that all our actions are in our power. Isn't that interesting? Um, This is a first century Jewish historian commissioned by Rome to take a tabulation of what is happening in this day and age. What is happening in the world of the ancient Near East? And among other things, Josephus identifies within Judaism three groups, highly religious groups, mind you, Three groups, all of whom are fighting over the issue of divine sovereignty and free will. How interesting that that debate rages on some 2,000 years later. I guess us humans are pretty good at figuring this stuff out. Right? Well, I'm I'm not going to clear it all up for us either. um, Because the fact that this debate has been going on for 2,000 years demonstrates that this is very much a mystery to man. It's very much a mystery to how we reconcile both God choosing and man yet having a free will. Now, in the face of all this divine choosing and election, Paul often heard people say, that's not right. That's not just. God can't do that. Or as Paul puts it, notice again in verse uh, 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul's response is very clear. He says, certainly not. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. Let's pause there for just a moment. Imagine for a moment that that you are Paul. Okay. imagine for a moment you are the Apostle Paul. And imagine you are to write out a response to this accusation in verse 14. All right. You're Paul. You're commissioned by God to write to the Christians in Rome to give them some wisdom in doctrine, to give them some some perspective on who God is and what this idea of election is all about. And you know instinctively that the people that you're writing to are going to ask the question, but isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust? Isn't God unrighteous for doing that? Now, if you were responding to this accusation, If you had the chance to write, what is it, verse 15, would you not write the best answer you could possibly wrap your arms around, right? Would you not give an answer to that accusation that was so solid, so defensible, so clear, so lucid that the people would would hear that answer and would think, okay, now I'm not going to ask that question anymore. Would you not put the matter to rest completely and finally with a decisive argument that silences all critics, quells all accusations? Of course you would. Of course you would respond with your best answer, your most convincing argument. Well, here is Paul's most convincing argument. Argument. Notice verse 15 and 16. 
to the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul writes, certainly not. And here's his answer. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God chooses some people. And He does not choose others. But Paul, that's not fair. That's unjust. That's not right, Paul. How can you say that? No, it's not unjust. It's not unrighteous. It is what it is. Because God said it that way. Because He said so. But why, Paul? How, how does that make any sense? If God alone chooses... If He alone chooses some and not others, then, then how, how, how is that not unjust? How is that possibly not unjust? And Paul's response very clearly is because He is God. And He alone reserves the right of when and to whom to bestow His mercy upon. You see, in Paul's mind, make no mistake, friends, in Paul's mind and in the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired him, verses 15 and 16 that we read is the best answer to defend God's character with respect to this issue. Let me say that again. In Paul's mind and in the mind of the Spirit who inspired him, verse 15 and 16 is the best answer that Paul can give to defend the character of God in election. Now, many of you are saying, but I don't like that answer. Fair enough. Many of us don't. In fact, you know, the world certainly doesn't like that answer. I mean, the world might prefer a different answer. Here's what the world might prefer. The world prefers God chooses people based on their good works, right? Hey, that's a good answer. Let's... Let's throw that up there because I would say a good portion of, uh, of the people of this world believe that now. They believe that they're going to go to heaven because of their works. And they, so they think, well, okay, if we're going to deal with election in the Bible, maybe we'll say something like God chooses based on what he sees. Oh, that's a good person, so I'm going to choose them. All right. A lot of people like that answer. A lot of Christians like another answer. Uh, many Christians I know would prefer uh, this answer, actually. God chooses people based on who he knows will eventually believe in Jesus. That's a great answer, isn't it? That is a great answer. I'm sure we can all agree that this answer is very, very likable. Right? It's easy to understand. It's logical. It's easily defensible. In fact, for many Christians, this is the best answer they could possibly give. 
for how to reconcile God's election and man's free will. But let me ask you something. If this answer were true, if this answer were true, can you think of any reason why Paul would withhold this answer from us in verses 15 and 16? If this answer were true, if this were the best answer, and many Christians believe it is, a whole slew of Christians believe this. And that's, this is how they reconcile God's election with man's free will. If that is the best answer, according to many, many believers, then pray tell me, why did Paul not give this answer? In verse 15. Is there any reason why he wouldn't say that here? Is there any reason why that wouldn't be a perfect fitting answer to finally quelch any accusation against God's character? Of course it would. You see, friends, if Paul had this answer available to him, he would have used it. The fact that he did not use it demonstrates that Paul didn't believe this. The fact that Paul did not say this answer at the most opportune moment to say it in all of the New Testament demonstrates that, in fact, Paul did not believe this answer to be true. Doug Moo, a preeminent New Testament scholar, writes this with, with respect to that. He, similarly, he says, Surely, surely if Paul had assumed that faith was the basis for God's election, he would have pointed this out when he raised the question in verse 14 about the fairness of God's election. Paul's silence on this point is telling. I couldn't agree more. Despite the fact that I don't like it, Despite the fact that this answer is not very satisfying to me as a human being, I can't get around the fact that Paul wouldn't give that answer. And the fact that he didn't tells me that Paul didn't believe that answer. Instead, he believed what he wrote in verse 15 and 16. Instead, he wrote what he did because the Spirit inspired him to write what he did. So whether we like it or not, Paul is suggesting here that God is God. And as God, he retains the prerogative to do as he pleases. And that is why he can say in verse 15 to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. All human attempts, all human attempts to somehow merit God's mercy are totally inconsequential. Totally inconsequential. According to verse 16, so it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. A couple other points from those who have spent much time in Romans. F.F. F. Bruce writes this. He says, if God were compelled, think about this, if God were compelled to show mercy, to be merciful, 
by some cause outside himself, not only would his mercy be so much the less mercy, but he himself would be so much the less God. And Hodges writes this, to make mercy a human entitlement is to destroy its gracious character and turn it into a divine obligation. Thus, if God acts in mercy or grace toward Isaac or towards Jacob, there is no unrighteousness in doing so. Notice this. Neither Ishmael, Isaac's brother, or Esau, Jacob's brother, were deprived of anything they had a right to claim. You see, so many, so many Christians look at this election thing and they say, that's not fair, God. How can you choose some and not choose others? And Hodge's point is to say, you know, God looks at them and says, what have I deprived you of? By not choosing you, by not electing you, what have I deprived you of? Well, let's see. I created you and you rebelled against me. You sinned against me. You sin every day against me. Tell me, what have I deprived you of by not electing you? Is there some merit I'm overlooking? No. Neither Ishmael or Esau were deprived of anything by not being elected by God. There's no unfairness. There's no unrighteousness. And so neither Ishmael nor Esau nor anyone else in the history of the entire world, who have not been chosen by God, not one of them were deprived. Not one of them were treated unjustly. Not one of them were treated unfairly by God because God had no, God had no obligation to them. None. He had no obligation. He did not even need to choose any. And yet he did choose some in his grace. Now, up until this point, Paul has been defending God's character with respect to whom he elects to receive mercy. But now in verse 17, Paul is going to tackle an even more difficult issue. The issue of God's sovereignty as it pertains to those who are hardened against him. Take a look at verse 17 as Paul continues. He writes this for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills. He hardens. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Now, here again, we have Paul quoting from the Exodus you know, earlier uh, in verse 15, he was talking uh, to Moses. And in fact, the passage he's quoting now in verse 17 is also actually a comment made to Moses, but he's personalizing it to Pharaoh here. God declares that he raised Pharaoh up, that he sustained Pharaoh, that he brought Pharaoh forth for the express purpose of displaying his power and making his name known worldwide. And in fact, uh, it's interesting because that's exactly what happened. I mean, God's power was magnificently displayed in the Exodus story. We see the, the ten plagues. Uh, 
word of the God of Israel spread throughout the ancient Near East. So much so that hundreds of years later, when the Israelites were interacting with the Philistines in the land of Canaan, the Philistines would point to the Israelites, uh, I think it's in 1 Samuel 4, and they would say, watch out, these are those whom God delivered from Egypt. Word had spread everywhere about Yahweh, the God of Israel. His fame was going worldwide as a result of the story of the Exodus and Pharaoh. And Paul is very clear in Romans 9, verse 17 and 18, of what he has done, of what God has done. In essence, the Lord used Pharaoh to accomplish his goals and what needed to happen in order uh, to, what needed to happen to Pharaoh in order for God's aims to be achieved was that Pharaoh's heart needed to be hardened. Therefore, Paul concludes in verse 18, the Lord has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Now, here again, we read something like this as human beings. And uh, we're, we're not devoid of emotion. I'm not pretending that we are. I don't read this and uh, think that it answers all of my problems. I don't, I don't approach this text and leave extremely satisfied, having my thirst extremely quenched by the answers that Paul is giving. And many, many people dislike the notion that God hardens people. Many people believe it to be unjust and arbitrary of God to do so. Paul certainly heard this argument time and time again. He quotes the objections of his critics in verse 19. He says, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? I'm going to pose the question another way, just just a little bit more in plain English, perhaps. Here's the question that Paul's uh, Paul's critics are asking of him. They say, look, Paul, if God hardens some people, how can he fault them when they rebel against him? It's a great question. Paul, if God hardens some people, how can he fault them when they rebel against him? So here again, here we are, second time in our text today, where Paul finds himself needing to defend the character of God, right? Here again, the second time in just these short verses, Paul is put in a place where he is called upon to defend the integrity of And the character of God in the face of a huge accusation. Now, interestingly enough, many Christians really don't pay attention to Paul's answer in verse 20 that we'll read here shortly. Well, sure, they read it. They'll read Romans 9, verse 20 and following, but they instinctively supplement it with what they believe is a better answer. In other words, they try to... Let's help Paul out a little bit, right? Make him look good. The apostle can use that every once in a while. Make him look a little bit better. And so many Christians, they, they read what Paul answered. They, they, they look at this question and they look at Paul's answer and they go, okay, Paul, that was pretty good. But I'm going to add a little bit more. I'm going I'm to supplement what you just said, Paul, and make it a little bit more clear because I think I got it down, Paul. Here's the answer that many Christians supplement to Paul's answer that we'll read in just a moment. Here's the answer that many Christians supplement 
to this accusation. Well, hey, God only hardens those who harden themselves. Wow, that is a great answer, you know, isn't it? That is a fantastic answer. I love that answer. It's easy to understand. It's logical. It's easily defensible. Heck, I declare that that behind me is a perfect answer. What a great answer. Paul, why don't you use this answer? Surely, Paul, you're you're in a position here. You've just been asked one of the hardest questions of all time. One of the questions that down through the centuries, philosophers and religious people and, and average Joes have been asking. If God can harden people, then how can he fault them when they rebel? Paul, come on, here's your perfect opportunity to give our little supplemental answer. We thought, we thought it up. We put it together. It sounds really good. Now, just write it down. Verse, what is it going to be now? What, 21, right? Verse 20. Paul, verse 20. This should be your answer. Hmm. Let me ask you again. If Paul... Believe this to be true. Don't you think he'd mention it? Right? If Paul knew by the Spirit who instructed him that God only hardens, that God is limited to only hardening those who have already hardened themselves. Don't you think that'd be the best answer to give in verse 20? Right? So, I'm perplexed. And it should be perplexing to you. And anyone who reads Romans 9, regardless of theological conviction, it should be confusing to you and to me. Why Paul doesn't say this? Instead, he says something else. Notice verse 20 and 21. He says, But indeed, O man, who are you? Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why'd you make me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God has mercy on whom He wills. And He hardens whom He wills. That's not fair, Paul. That's crazy. If that were true, then then how could God find fault with anyone? Who are you? Who are you to reply against God? Does not the potter have power over the clay? 
to do with it as he wishes. I submit to you, friends, that verse 20 and 21 is Paul's best answer to the accusation in verse 19. I submit to you that if the best answer was, well, God only hardens those who have already hardened themselves, then Paul would have said that. That he didn't say that is compelling to say the least. Now, for those who remember Romans well, some of you are now are ticking through Romans and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, though. Doesn't God, uh, doesn't God react to those uh, who were doing sin back in Romans 1? Yeah, He does. In fact, if you go back to Romans 1, we're not going to really read it, but if you go to Romans 1 and you study the end of it, you'll see time and time again a list of things where the creation, the people are rebelling against God and they're doing all these awful things. And three or four times Paul says, and God gave them over to it. They did all these things and God said, fine. Here it is. You can have it. You can have all these things. They were sinning like crazy. And three or four times in Romans 1, Paul says God gave them over to the desires of their heart. God gave them over to these vile passions. God gave them over to the things that they wanted to do. Now there in Romans 1, we would be correct in saying that God reacted Notice this word, that God reacted to the wicked desires of sinners and gave them what they wanted. Of this we can be sure, God reacts to sin. Romans 1. Of that we can be sure, God reacts to sin. Oftentimes when men and women sin, God says, fine, you, uh, you take this in full now. But Romans 9 is not Romans 1. They are distinct. And the way we know that they are distinct is because in Romans 1, God is reactive to the sins of men and women. Whereas in Romans 9, Paul demonstrates that God is proactive in his hardening of some. Let me say that again. In Romans 1, we see God reacting to the sins of men and women. In Romans 9, we don't see reaction. We see God who is being proactive in hardening some. Note carefully verse 18 in our, in our text here today in Romans 9. Verse 18 again, Paul writes, Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. Now, two things are especially noteworthy here. Don't miss this. Number one, the phrase, whom He wills. Or whomever he wishes in other translations. God shows mercy on whomever he wants to. And God hardens whomever he wants to. Last I checked, who he wants to means who he wants to. His mercy is not contingent. Let me say this clearly. His mercy is not contingent on the person being worthy of mercy. Likewise, his hardening is not contingent 
on a person first hardening themselves. Sometimes God reacts. Sometimes men and women go off into deep and egregious sin. And according to Romans 1, God looks upon that sin and says, fine, have it in full measure. Other times, Romans 9, God uses particular people. We see Pharaoh. Quite frankly, later on in Romans, we're going to see the nation of Israel in which he willfully, not reactively, but proactively hardens that he might accomplish his purposes. That he might carry out his power. We'll we'll come to that more as we continue on in Romans 9 in, in future weeks. So two things are important about this verse behind me. Number one, whomever he wills. A phrase like that is not a reactive phrase. It is a proactive phrase. And number two, you can't mistake the parallelism between what we see in verse 18. On the one hand, Paul says God shows mercy on whomever he wills. And in the same manner, in the same mode, he can show he can choose to harden whomever he wills. Essentially, Paul is suggesting that God exercises his hardening of some people in the same manner that he exercises his mercy on other people. Now, what manner is that? We already saw that manner back in Romans 9, verse 11. Remember, we we looked at it together. Look at it again. This is the manner in which God shows mercy. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. That is the manner in which God elects some to mercy. There's a parallelism in verse 18. The manner in which he is electing some to mercy is also the manner in which He is choosing to harden others. God chose to show mercy to Jacob before he was born. Before he had done good or evil. Based on God's purpose according to election. And Paul is very plainly suggesting in verse 18... That the manner in which God chose to give Jacob mercy is also the manner in which he decided to harden Pharaoh. So we would be correct in saying God chose to harden Pharaoh before he was born. Before he had done any good or evil. Based on his purpose. According to election. Now. We ask the question, well, what did that mean? We've got to put the brakes on for a moment. What is, up until this point, we've, we've just assumed what it means. We haven't actually dealt with it. What does it mean to harden someone? What does it mean to harden someone? The Greek word for harden in uh, Paul's writings is skleruno. And uh, it very plainly means to to make stubborn or to be hardened, to make obstinate. Uh, It's used uh, some six times in the New Testament and dozens and dozens of times in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, 
this word is, is, is really has a wide uh, has a wide compass over the scriptures. It, it it can account for a variety of things. On the one hand, it can account for uh, unbelievers' stubbornness. We see that in Acts 19:9. If you were to turn there and and read plainly the text there, you'd notice that uh, that Luke is speaking of uh, some unbelievers who were stubborn towards Paul. They were obstinate toward his message. But that's not all. Actually, Scleruno's most notable use in all of the New Testament is found in Hebrews, verses chapters 3 and 4. And in Hebrews 3.12, in fact, I want you to turn there. I don't have it behind me, I don't believe. Hebrews chapter 3, turn there. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It's a fascinating take on Scleruno. And it will give us some, some thoughts for what, what God is doing when he's hardening people. Go ahead and bring that next one up. Hebrews 3 and 4, especially 3, 12 to 14. We're going to see potential hardening of believers. Huh? Yeah, take a look. Notice verse 12. The author of Hebrews writes, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What's going on in Hebrews 3? Guess what? Believers, Christians. Notice the word brethren in verse 12. You and I who believe in Jesus Christ can become hardened. We can become stubborn. The author of Hebrews warns us against that. What are the consequences if we become stubborn? Not hell. No. He says in verse 14, we become metakoi or partakers. And the word metakoi there in Greek really means having a special union with the Lord. Having, ultimately, having a special opportunity to be in relationship with the Lord in the kingdom to come. It has to do with reigning with Christ. It has to do with rewards in the kingdom. It has to do that, hey, if you remain faithful to the Lord, open and, and a, a heart that is open to Him, you will become metakoi, a partaker with Christ in the kingdom. But if you are stubborn, scleruno, and you harden your heart, you will lose out on any inheritance that you might have otherwise had in the kingdom. No, you won't go to hell. You will simply miss out on the ultimate opportunity that the Lord has given you to be one of His metakoi, His partakers. So we see here that scleruno, or hardening, can relate to unbelievers and it can relate to believers. What's interesting about this use of scleruno is that if... It's a characteristic, excuse me, if it's a characteristic that believers are called to avoid in Hebrews 3, that means that surely believers can become that, right? I want to say two things then in light of this, in light of what we've seen here in Acts 19 and Hebrews 3, I want to say two things about hardening according to the scriptures. The first on your outline is this, the quality of hardening is not necessarily tied to eternal damnation. Please note that. Please note that. Because that will change, that will utterly change the way you're approaching Romans 9. 
Because so many people, so many scholars, they'll read Romans 9, particularly uh, those with a heavy bent toward Calvinism or toward Reformed theology, and they'll approach Romans 9 really firm on election, really firm on predestination, and they get to the word hardening, and they, they have this knee-jerk reaction that it means eternal damnation. It doesn't always mean that. That's the plain and simple evidence in Scripture. And so while I today have been very strong on the biblical doctrine of election, I've been very strong on the biblical doctrine of predestination, here is where I put the brakes on. And here is where we, as a people approaching God's word, should, should kind of hit the brakes a little bit. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean he sent him to hell? The hardening is not always tied to eternal damnation. Looking back at the story of Pharaoh, you will not find, read through Exodus, you will not find any indicator that God's hardening of Pharaoh was for the purpose of sending him to hell. It wasn't the purpose. No, the purpose of God's hardening of Pharaoh was so that God's power and so that God's name could be proclaimed throughout the earth. That was the purpose of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And that should open our eyes to what it means when we come across this, this, this word hardening. It's not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart unto hell. It's that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his glory might be shown throughout the earth. Now, is Pharaoh in hell? Uh, I'll, I'll put a bet toward that. Most likely, yeah. I, I think he probably is. Is he in hell because God hardened his heart? Scripture doesn't say that. It just doesn't. Those that make the contention that that's the reason Pharaoh's in hell, those that make the, the contention, it's called the supralapsarianism in Reformed theology, those who make the contention that God elects some to mercy in heaven and elects others to hardening vis-a-vis -vis hell, uh, that's called supralapsarianism, that latter connection is not explicit. It's just not. And we need to be careful about any view of God that would willfully elect one of his creatures to condemnation. Because the scriptures are pretty clear that God desires that all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we need to balance that scripture by Paul, no less, that all, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth with what we are reading in Romans 9. And they need, they need to match up. And this view of hardening starts to, to mend those bridges there. What the Scriptures do say about God's hardening of Pharaoh is that God hardened Pharaoh to accomplish His purposes, to magnify His name, to show His power. God did not choose to harden Pharaoh so that He could insert him into hell. And that's the first thing we need to say about hardening. The second thing, which by implication comes out, is the Scriptures give evidence that hardening uh, is often temporal in nature. I had that wrong on my notes, but at least it's right up there. The Scriptures give evidence that hardening is often temporal in nature. And I'll, honestly, behind the word often, I should put a question mark. Because it could be the case 
that we should, we, we should make the point that it is always temporal in nature. I'm not prepared to do that yet in my theological studies. Um, I'm open. When I read the Word, I read it fresh. And uh, I don't... Uh, I ask the Spirit of God to guide me. I don't ask the Spirit of the commentators. And so when I approach the Word, I, I try to approach it as fresh and as new as I can, and I hope you do as well. Uh, at this point... I'm prepared to say often temporal. I'm not prepared to say always temporal. But of course, if there ever was an always, that would bring up a whole new can of worms that we need to deal with. So I'm going to give you homework in a minute, but um, that's something that I'd like you to do some homework on. Can you find evidence in the Scriptures where God's hardening of someone's heart is permanent? And beyond that, where it is permanent for the ultimate end of eternally condemning them. Um, these are things that we need to grapple with, we need to wrestle with, and I would love to dialogue with you about more and more. At this point in my uh, studies, and I am a work in progress, uh, Pastor Arch can come up and clarify all this when I'm done. Uh, at this point, I'm prepared to say that the Scripture gives evidence that hardening is often temporal in nature. And how do we know this? Well, we, we see this very evident later on in Romans. Look at Romans 11.25. Is, uh, is this not so plain? This is what Paul says just, just chapters later. He says of Israel in verse 25 of Romans 11. Actually, I'll read it from the New American Standard. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening, in New King James' blindness, but a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Did you catch that? A partial hardening. And the word blindness in the New King James is actually, it's actually the same word. There's not a difference in manuscripts. There's just a difference in translation here. I happen to believe that this, this translation is probably more precise. A partial hardening has happened to whom? To Israel. To God's chosen people. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you catch that? The people whom God elected, elected, are partially hardened. How is that? How do I, how do I take that into my understanding of Romans 9? That's pretty interesting. The very nation, the very people whom God elected to obtain mercy are the same very people who are currently, even now, under a partial hardening. Why? Not for the purpose of sending them to hell. It's not what the Scripture says. So that you and I might come to know Jesus Christ in faith. So that the fullness, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Israel is under a partial hardening right now by God. So that you and I, Gentiles, those of us who are not from non-Jewish backgrounds, can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe upon the Lord for our salvation. That's pretty fascinating. So let's clear some things up here as we, as we come to a conclusion. We're suggesting that when God chooses to harden another person, A, it's meant to demonstrate his power, not predestined people to hell. And B, that it is temporal in nature. 
and even carries with it the possibility of being reversed. Because as, as you continue reading on in Romans, that's precisely what happens to the nation of Israel. So we come to the final verse, verse 21 in Romans 9. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Here again, the issue is not heaven and hell. Let me make that very clear. The issue is how God uses people to accomplish his purposes. In some cases, his power and name are magnified by the honorable conduct of another In other cases, God's power and name are magnified by the dishonorable conduct of a person. In the immediate context, Pharaoh was a vessel for dishonor. But inasmuch as God fashions some humans for dishonor, even Paul elsewhere in his writings allows for the possibility that that same vessel can be cleansed and changed into a vessel of honor. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy. Paul writes this. He says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay and some for honor and some for dishonor. Similar wording. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here again, we see clearly evidence That a dishonorable vessel, perhaps a hardened heart, one that God at one point in time uses in a dishonorable way to magnify his name, that that hardening, that that dishonor, that it can be temporal in nature, that it is not a predestination to hell, that it is not a fashioning unto hell. That's not the point of Romans 9 here. We see here a temporal hardening. To carry out God's purposes with the opportunity for repentance, restoration, and renewal when that vessel turns to the Lord in faith. I've listed on your outline there uh, some homework. Um, So here we are. We're in God's plan for Israel. Mercy and hardening are God's prerogatives. Uh, When you hit verse 22, uh, you'll hit another doozy. (laughs) I want you to wrestle with it. And we're not going to come to it for a while because um, we've got a guest speaker next week and I'm going to hit a series on money. So it's going to be a month. I'm going to give you a month to mull over this. And I want you to. I want you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. I want you to study up on the issue of election, of predestination, of hardening. I want you to analyze those concepts. Make that a part of your devotion, of your theological study. And I want us to come back in later September when we come back to this portion of Scripture. I want us to come back informed. I want us to come back with more questions. And above all, I want us to remember that as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes were debating about this issue some 2,000 years ago, we're going to be debating about it until the Lord returns. And we can have disagreements. Um, I, 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 I'm not sticking the stake in the sand and say, believe this or, you know, or you're crazy. This is one of those issues that is very sensitive. But let's try to be as faithful to the word as we can. Faithful as we can. Making sense of what the plain meaning of Scripture says. Asking the Spirit to guide us. So study up on this issue. And we'll see you back in about a month when we come back to it. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father. Lord, we don't pretend to understand all of this. Um, Surely, Lord, the the debate that's raged for centuries 
over your sovereignty and the free will of your creation is one that is perhaps beyond man's comprehension. But Lord, we see Paul very comfortable with that dichotomy. We see him avoiding answers that he could have given to clear away any misconceptions. And instead, we see him time and time again, Lord, asserting your divine prerogatives. You, Lord, have the prerogative to show mercy in you alone. You, Lord, have the prerogative to harden in you alone. And Father, we are but clay in your hands. We ask, Lord, that you would show mercy to us. We ask that you would allow us to be vessels used for your honor. That through us, your power and name might be magnified. But Lord, however, however we go through this life, and however you use us for your purposes, Lord, we will yet be content to look to you in faith, to trust you, to trust your word, and to allow some of the perplexing nature of this topic, to allow that to nevertheless settle in our hearts. Trusting you, Father, for our future. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that uh, you would continue just to clear up and clarify your word. Show us your truth, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.